0: Uh, The scripture for today from the book of Isaiah, I'm going to be reading four passages from Isaiah 40 verses 25 to 26, Isaiah 43 verses 10 to 13, Isaiah 45 verses 5 to 7, and Isaiah 46 verses 9 to 10. It starts on page 715 in the Pew Bible if you'd like to follow along but Pastor David has asked me to read this straight through so that you can get an overall feeling for what uh, the verses are saying. So if you'd like, you can just sit back and listen. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed. And there was no strange God among you, so you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does these things. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. This is the word of God.
1: There is no one, nothing, like that compares to God. Go to him. Think of the last time you were at the beach, all right? After situating all your stuff on your claimed little section of sand, um, you make your over, way over to the wet, smoother, harder sand where all the kids are making their sandcastles with moats and so forth. And then... Into the ocean you go, walking over the little pebble section, ouch, 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 ouch till you get about calf deep. And then <clears throat> it's totally impossible to hear anything anyone was saying back where your towels and flip-flops are, you know. Honey, are you sure that the kids have sunscreen on? You can't hear any of that. <laughs> the ocean fills all of your senses. Now you're waist high and getting pulverized by ceaseless wave after wave after wave, my favorite part. Then a bit deeper, and you look out, and you see maybe a sailboat or a sea lion, you know, some kind of ship. And you look beyond there, and there is nothing but water. Water that would take a plane going 500 miles an hour, eight hours to get across the Atlantic Ocean. Or if you're taking a ship, it would take eight days to go across. So now, if you will, there's a bottle of water in front of you. If you'll open it up and pour just a little bit of water, like cup your hand and pour just a little bit of water cupped in your hand, and you can share with a couple other people. You can help them cup, put the water in their hand. You got ears in there, Agnes? All right. <clears throat> now, how much water do you think you have in your hand? About, give or take. Teaspoon, Teaspoon yeah. Teaspoon, tablespoon, yeah, right around there. Okay, great. So now you can slip it up. Use that napkin that's there if you want to. Right, God through the prophet Isaiah wants us to get an idea of how incomparable God is. And so God describes that he places all the oceans of the earth in his cupped hand. Okay, think about that ocean experience you've had all of the water in the world in his cupped hand and measures it out. God uses this language to drive home the point that I, who would drown if I were just even a quarter of a mile off the beach, I who, when I look, I feel so small, I have no capacity to measure the volume of all the water in a lake, much less the Atlantic Ocean, all the waters of the world, I cannot compare to God. His greatness is so beyond me. It's like saying all the oceans are in the cupped part of his hand. Or in other words, no one, nothing compares to God. Think of the last road trip you've taken, maybe through the Appalachian Mountains or the Rocky Mountains or maybe mind-numbing hours through the middle of the United States or in the midst of throngs of people in Times Square, Chicago, Los Angeles, maybe you've been to India or Spain, Russia, Iran, Colombia, Dominican Republic, all the natural wonders of the world, all the man made wonders, how much do you think the landmass of the island that has the Dominican Republic and Haiti weighs? I, I, you can't even, like, how much does the Dominican Republic weigh? Or take all the military might, all the people in the United States or in one of these other countries, all the might and power of the people and all of their weaponry and military. Now there's a Dixie cup behind the water, and there's some colored sand in there. See if there's any way you can get one piece of sand. You might have to lick your fingers. Though. One piece of sand on your finger. All right, everyone got it on? One one piece of sand on your finger. Now, let's say you were talking to someone just in normal conversation and they were to ask you, how much does that weigh? Like what would you probably say? Like no yeah, basically nothing, right? Basically nothing. God says in Isaiah that the nations of the world, whether you're looking at it from the weight of land mass, like lifting up an entire island, or all of the people and the power of it, as not as much as a speck of dust, which is smaller than the piece of grain that was on our finger. Again, the language is to underscore that no one, nothing, compares to God. So these majestic, mind-boggling descriptions, some of the ones Pam read, but I mean, if you just read, because Isaiah 28 to 48 was our Scripture reading as a church, and so if you just read through all of that, didn't you notice over and over again all these descriptions of God, how majestic and mind-boggling they were? In this section of Scripture, God is making an appeal to Israel and to us don't go to idols. I mean why are you going to idols? Go to me. So I want us to look at three settings from the book of Isaiah our scripture reading from for, as a church in which the clear cut best decision is to go to God. No one nothing compares to God. Go to him. When you are weary, so if you go to in your pew Bible to page seven hundred and fifteen, or in your Bible then to Isaiah chapter forty, read, follow along with me as I read Isaiah forty twenty five through thirty one, part of what uh, Pam had read, and a little bit extra. To whom then will you liken me, that I would be his equal? Says the Holy One, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who has led forth their host by number. He calls them by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks, he gives uh, increases power. Who lacks might he increases power? Though youth grow weary and tired, and vigorous men stumble badly, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will not walk and not become weary. God is never weary. Tiredness never touches God. We, on the other hand, we do get weary. Has parenting ever caused you to be weary? Okay, yeah, it has, it has, right? From starting with postpartum, the weight of responsibility of nurturing and training and providing for children questions and discipline and reminding and protecting and chauffeuring, right? Does anyone get weary from work? deadlines pressure coworkers clients customers complaints manual labor quality control continuous improvement your boss those who report to you students do you ever get tired maybe of being parented <laughs> of chores of school, of grades, homework, expectations of what you're supposed to do when you get out of school, peer pressures, brothers and sisters. Does anyone feel weary with certain relationships? Or maybe um, family of origin issues? How about grief? Or grief piled on grief? Weary of... The grief that comes from the loss of a loved one, or the loss of a job, or loss of a close relationship? How about the past that always seems to creep up into your present day thoughts? Does that ever get you tired out? Or who here is weary of money problems or situations? Anyone weary of being discouraged so often? Or weary of being anxious? Or weary related to health conditions or chronic pain or some other misfortune? What about being weary from injustice? Being on the wrong side of injustice? Weary that some people just don't understand the pain and heaviness of injustice and prejudice and inequity. Maybe you feel weary of being invisible or of not being understood Or you're weary of ministry and volunteering. Or you're weary of the non-glamorous life you live. Or the speed of life that never stops. Or you're weary of having no safety net. So what I want you to do is take a minute and write down something. Or several things about which you are weary of right now. It could be some of the things I've mentioned, but there's a whole host of other ones, obviously, that I haven't mentioned. But maybe just write down something about which you are weary. Now, let's think about where we go to when we're weary. Or at least we're tempted to go to. Now, in these passages throughout uh Isaiah, we find that Israel would go to idols. Here's this nice tree, they cut it down, they use half of it for burning, warming themselves. Aha, I feel warm, you know, that section, and they and eat things. And with the other half of the tree, they make an idol to worship it, to give them strength, to bring them some kind of relief from weariness. Where do we go when we're weary? Entertainment, if I could just veg for a while, then my weariness might be gone. Food, alcohol, drugs or other addictions, spending or hoarding money. We're tempted to go here and other places because we just want to escape the weariness for even a little while. But other times we attempt to, like, gain strength. Like, we got to make it through this. we got to push through. And so we try to get strength from anger or bitterness or resentment or fantasies or daydreams, or we dive headlong into endless forms of competition because that will give us the adrenaline. Or maybe if we could just prove our parents or siblings or coworkers wrong, that will give us enough fuel to be able to get through this weariness. If we could just get completely fit Then we would get rid of the weariness. But God is completely unlike any of these things. And while they may provide an inadequate, incomplete, or temporary distraction from our weariness, or give us some kind of minimal energy or fuel or strength, they are nothing like God and nothing like the way He can solve our weariness. It isn't that God vaporizes the things that make us weary. Notice the part that we just read. He gives us strength so that we can run, walk, fly, take care of aging parents. Uh, like we can do all those things, but then He gives us new strength so we aren't weary while we're doing them. We are running. Running can wear us out. But... If, we're ru- if God gives us this, strength, this new strength, then we run but are not weary. Isn't that unusual? Isn't that mind-boggling? That we could be doing activity that would make us as human beings weary, and yet we're not weary. God is the one to go to. He provides us with new strength, Strength that is incomparable to others. And then God did something unexpected. When you go over to Isaiah 42, God, this is where he uh, prophesies this, God becomes a man. He sent Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to be a man, to experience all the things that people experience, getting them weary. He had all of those things. The difference is that Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, never sinned, never every once, and he didn't turn to idols for strength. The Bible says, since we have so great a high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our, what? With our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near. In other words, go to God with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy. Find grace in help, to help in times of need. And when we're weary is one of those. When Jesus was weary, think of the emotional weariness after his friend John the Baptist was beheaded. Or the weariness after feeding the 5,000, or in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus was weary, he went to God the Father. And this is the same Jesus, the one who says, reminiscent of God in Isaiah 40, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your weary souls. Think of all of Jesus' miracles, incomparable to anyone else. Think of all his teachings, incomparable. Remember when he speaks a word and this entire army that is coming to arrest him of people, all this throng, actually falls down. Like they fall to the ground when he says a word. Doesn't that sound a little bit like Isaiah when God says, God says a breath and people like all the people like grass wither. Later, the apostle Paul writes in the scripture, I can do all things, even those things that would seem to make us weary through Christ who strengthened us. This sounds like Isaiah. God in Isaiah 40:29 he gives strength to the weary there is no one nothing that compares to God go to him when you are weary but there is a weariness more systemic than the things that we've even talked about there's a weariness that comes from sin and the shame and guilt that always accompany every sin The weariness of carrying all of our sin and shame and guilt is unbearably exhausting. Pastor Brandon preached two weeks ago on the prodigal son. This is the picture, the real life, life life-size story, the parable of uh, this prodigal son A person completely weary from sin. Okay, he's at the point of starvation, desperation, um, maybe even death. And so what does he decide to do? He decides to go back to his father. And Jesus in the parable is making us sure that we know that the father is representing God. Go to God. So he goes back to his father, and his father restores him completely as a son. And all the weariness that he experienced from squandering all that kind of stuff and where he thought he was about to die and all that he's experienced, all the weariness is gone when he comes to his father. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Think of how much pain your sin, my sin, how much pain our sin has caused us and other people. Now consider that Jesus took the sin of all of the people. He took the sin, the shame, the pain of all of the people who have ever and will ever live on this earth Your sin and shame and pain multiplied by billions or trillions. So it wasn't only the hideous pain that Jesus experienced of crucifixion, but it was the pain and all of the sin of the entire people of all of the world that he carried. And then Jesus, on the third day, rises from the dead, victorious over sin and death and hell, and he offers the exchange. Him for your sin, shame, and guilt, if you will ask him to forgive you and trust him as Savior. In other words, if you'll go to him when you are weary of sin. Nothing, no one compares to God. Go to him when you are weary of sin. No one, nothing compares to God. Go to Him when you are afraid. If you're in Isaiah still, turn a page over to chapter 44, and I'm going to read verses 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. There is no God beside me who is like me. Let Him proclaim and declare it. Let Him recount it to me in order from the first, from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declare it? You are my witnesses. There is, is there any God beside me or is there any other rock? I know of None. Being afraid, sadly, is all too common of an experience. So, <clears throat> uh, my brother in law, our Uncle John, to my daughters, was a big guy, six, three, built pretty strong, long blonde hair down to here when he wore his trench coat and smoked a cigarette. I mean, he was a tough looking character. I mean, he was. He might be a little scary just as is. But he would play hide and seek with our daughters when they were little. And so he would hide and then daughters would go around trying to find him. And then even if they got remotely close, he would jump out of the closet and scream at them. And like they would, I think one of our daughters said they literally wet their pants. And so this would have like, We had these family gatherings, and then he would say, let's play hide-and-seek. So do you understand the fear? Like, they were afraid to play hide-and-seek because Uncle John was going to jump out. Like, what are we afraid of, or why are we afraid? Well, the people of Israel, they were afraid of different things. They were afraid of the enemies around them, what they could do to them. They were afraid because they sensed how much weaker they were, how less in number, how much less military, you know, resources they had. They were afraid of being conquered, fearful of the horrible and gross test things that people would do to the men and women and children who were conquered. We are afraid of things and people that may overtake us. We can get afraid of what other people can do to us, our bodies, our reputation, our psyche, afraid of addictions, afraid of the future, afraid of failing, afraid of succeeding. Afraid of parenthood, new jobs, new schools, afraid of not being loved. Like there's a lot of things that we might be afraid of. This term, the rock, we sang about it. Um, Eric uh, mentioned it when he uh, read in the scripture from Psalm. The rock is a term of stability, safety, protection, and even provision. Remember when uh, God provided water even out of a rock. So is there anyone or anything that can challenge God or wrest us out of his hand? The one who measures all of the oceans in the cupped part of his hand and blows entire kingdoms away with one breath, no. And in fact, Jesus says there is no reason to fear people because they can only kill the body. So it's not that some of these really difficult things or things that are negative might happen to us. But God eradicates or extracts the fear out of those experiences. Even to the point that if someone died, uh, Eric was praying for the persecuted church. People who die. But God has ast- extracted the fear from that. Here's the probably the strong, one of the strongest rhetorical questions ever written in the scripture. If God is for us, who can, be, who can be against us? Like we can think of millions of names of people and even spiritual entities, but they're all wrapped up into the one thought that if we were to give a rhetorical response to the rhetorical question, who, if God is for us, who can be against us? What's the answer? No one. No one. Like even though it's not there in the scripture, that is the implied, that's the rhetorical question. There is no one. Who can be against us? Nothing compares with God. Who will separate us from the love of God? Will tribulations? No, it's, yes, we might have tribulations. But the fear is expressed because would we ever be separated from the love of God even in a tribulation? No. What about distress or persecution or famine or nakedness? Are there people who experience any of those things? Yes. But do any of those things separate us from the love of God? None of it does. Nothing can separate us. Like, that is amazing. That's, That's incomparable to anyone else but God. The end of the verse says this, but in all these things, now think of it, all these things, persecution, trials, tribulation, peril, sword, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. It's not saying that we, quote-unquote, win and st- in the sense that like we've conquered another person or we have fought them like Jason Bourne and put them down. Like That's not what he means by overlapping. He's saying that even though you go through the peril, like when you're going through it, you are not being conquered. You are actually overcoming in the midst of the peril that you're going through. And that is done through him who loved us. And so while we may and we will experience these difficult situations, we don't have to be afraid. No one, nothing compares to God. Go to him when you are afraid. No one, nothing compares to God. Go to him when you need to find purpose. Look at Isaiah 42 starting with verse 5 Isaiah 42 verse 5 Thus says the Lord thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out and spread out the earth and its offspring who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to the people who walk in it I am the Lord I have called you in righteousness I will also hold you by my hand and appoint you as a covenant to the people as a light to the nations, to the Gentiles. Now go over to forty-five twenty-one, Isaiah forty-five twenty-one. Declare and set forth your, oh wait, toward the end of, it, of verse 21. And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am the Lord, and there is no God other. Go to verse, chapter 49, verse 6. And he says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light to the nation so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Pastor Mark took us through the book of Ecclesiastes, and basically the overarching point was that all of the individual parts of life Um, Work, eating, uh, pleasure, um, making money, as well as like let's say the whole enchilada. So all of the parts or the whole thing if you want to say life is purposeless and meaningless without God. Conversely, life with God is such that God infuses purpose and meaning into everything and in particular to those who have a saving relationship with Jesus. And of course God's purposeful in all he does. And all, in the way he does it. So in response to all God has done. We actually have the ability. That every activity of, of ours. Could actually have meaning and purpose. Whether you eat. Or something as mundane as drink. Or whatever you do do all to the glory of God. Every activity can be an act of worship to Him. In Romans chapter 12, the response to what God has done to save us is that we present our bodies, that is our mind, our feet, our hands, anything that can be done with a physical part of our body, present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, which is our reasonable service of worship. But let's look at the specific overarching purpose of God that he communicates throughout the Bible, but specifically in Isaiah. God's purpose is to bring people of all nations into a saving relationship with him. From the day Adam and Eve sinned, everything God did from that point on was to point to the time when Christ, the Redeemer and Savior of the world, would come. Jesus declared himself what his purpose was for coming to seek and to save that which was lost. That's all of us. Some of Christ's last words, the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. The most epic, tear-jerking, celebratory scene ever written about is in Revelation. And what is it? People from every tongue and tribe and nation worshiping God around the throne. God's purpose is to redeem people and because we are partakers of his divine nature, that's our purpose too. And everything that we do can have a purpose and we have this specific eternity impacting purpose. And God has designed this specific purpose to be accomplished through the local church when we look at our mission statement and our vision statement at redeemer can't you see it underlying all of that to become a multi-ethnic people from all nations and tribes and tongues to become a multi-ethnic church of influence pursuing individual family city and world renewal for the sake of the gospel because god has chosen the local church to accomplish this purpose that he has this overarching one purpose that he has How you and I get involved at Redeemer, and by extension, the Church Universal, plays a significant part in that happening. So, your involvement as an usher, triad, facilitator, K Kids teacher or assistant, nursery, worship team member, ESL teacher or tutor, Christmas for the Nations team member, Yorktown ESL teacher or tutor, uh, Gravity 24, the youth ministry uh, leader or team member, hospitality team, women's ministry, marriage mentoring. They all propel us to accomplish God's purpose, and God has supernaturally gifted each of us to be involved to support the work of the local church and by extension the church universal so each task within the church at redeemer is both infused with purpose by god because we can do everything we do as an act of worship to god but it's also directly connected to god's one per- his overarching purpose of seeing people come to know christ that people from all nations would be saved. So what I want to do is. Let's take out our bulletin. And right there. In this section. I want to, you to think. This is something practical from Isaiah. And through the scripture. And this message. And that is. What if you were to take a moment. And fill out. How you were going to serve. Or were interested in serving. At Redeemer. Because every one of those tasks, ministry, is part, directly connected through the local church to accomplishing God's overarching purpose that people from all nations, tongues, and tribes. And if you can't, and then if you do that now and leave it on the pew, then we'll pick them up. Or maybe you need to take it and pray about it or think about it for a week. And next week, fill that out or the one about being a triad leader No one, nothing compares to God. Go to him when you need to find purpose. No one, nothing compares to God. And this is what the Bible says about those of us who have trusted in Christ. We are in him, like the person who cups his hand and all of the water, all of the oceans of the world in there, that same God, we are in Him, the Bible says in Ephesians. It says that God is with us, Emmanuel. God is with us. God is for us. Through Him, Philippians, we are strengthened. So you may be wondering, what does it mean to go to Him? Like, what does it mean to go to God? Like, yes, I agree. He's incomparable. There's no one that compares to God. There's no one like him. There's nothing like him. If I'm weary right now, I should go to him. If I'm afraid, I should go to him. If I need to find purpose, I should go. What does that mean? Well, for the prodigal son, it meant walking several miles, starting with the first step. For the woman with a 12-year blood disease, it meant reaching out and touching the hem of Christ's garment. For Peter, James, and John, it meant getting out of the boat dropping their nets, and following Jesus. Thomas, for him it meant reaching out and touching Jesus' scars. It's kind of like the movies, you know, when the person says, go to her. Go to him. Like, does the person really need a lot of, like, particulars? No, they understand. They run to the airport before the person jumps on the plane. Go to him. You know, like there's an action step that you take. Let's say you're weary of sin today. And you realize now that no one or nothing compares to God. No one can solve the sin problem in your life. I'd say... During the doxology, take a physical step to tell God that you're going to Him and come up to this front pew or to one of these steps and pray. What if you're weary about some other problem? One of the ones you wrote down on the bulletin. You're ready to go to, what does that mean? Well, you could take a physical step and come up here and pray. What if you're if you're afraid? You could do the same thing. Maybe you've been going to other things to find purpose, and now it's time to go to God. Same thing. So as we sing the doxology, it might be that, but it might be some other way. You're just hearing that person say, "Go to Him," and you know what that means. Maybe it means asking someone to forgive you. Maybe it means I need to pray in my seat. Maybe it means I need to give something away. Whatever it is, you know what it means to go to God. So as we sing the doxology, go to God. Lord Jesus.